it's Friday the 18th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. North Korea fired another intercontinental ballistic missile into the East Sea on Friday morning. South Korea and the US launched aerial exercises in response. We'll have the latest updates in news briefing shortly. FTX, one of the world's largest crypto exchanges, filed for bankruptcy last week. We dive into the renewed concerns that this has raised about cryptocurrencies for Weekly Economy Review today. And then coming up on Movie Spotlight, we review a remake of a hit melodrama and a family drama that won a record five awards at the Busan International Film Festival last year. Let's begin Korea 24. North Korea fired an intercontinental ballistic missile on Friday morning in an apparent response over the move by the US to reinforce its extended deterrence protection of South Korea and Japan. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Kuhi Jin, joins us in the studio now to give us the latest update on North Korea's latest launch, as well as the slew of condemnation from South Korea and the international community. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, jang So we're receiving breaking news that South Korea countered the morning missile by scrambling its fighter, its stealth fighters. Uh, They bombed a mock target in the shape of a transporter erector launcher, often used by North Korea to shoot its missiles. So can you give us a rundown of today's events? Of course. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said uh, North Korea fired the ICBM, its second this month and the eighth so far this year, towards the East Sea from the Sunan area in Pyongyang at 10.15am on Friday. The missile flew around 1,000 kilometres and hit an altitude of 6,100 kilometres at a top speed of Mark 22. Um, The projectile likely fell into waters some 210 kilometres west of an island in northern Hokkaido within Japan's exclusive economic zone. Adjusting the launch angle for the missile to between 30 to 45 degrees would have extended the flight distance to around 15,000 kilometres, putting the US east coast within range. The latest escalation comes a day after North Korean uh, Foreign Minister Chesoni warned of a more violent military action in response to Seoul, Washington and Tokyo's decision to bolster the US nuclear deterrence capabilities against Pyongyang's threats, then immediately following up with a launch of a short-range missile. South Korea's Air Force sent up F-35A stealth fighters jets on Friday and bombed a mock-up of a North Korean transporter erector launcher with GBU-12 precision laser-guided bombs as part of a joint drill with the US following the North's ICBM launch. This is the first time that a South Korean stealth fighter uh, bombed a mock North Korean TAL. Additionally, four F-35A fighters and four F-16 fighters from the U.S. Air Force flew in a combined attack formation over the East Sea as part of the exercise. 
Now, earlier in the day, South Korean President Yoon Sang-yeol initially responded by instructing his National Security Council to follow up on his recent agreement with U.S. President Joe Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida to bolster the U.S. extended deterrence capabilities. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more? Well, Yoon instructed his Security Council to swiftly facilitate measures agreed upon by Seoul and Washington to enhance extended deterrence in the area. His office also blasted the launch, accusing the Kim Jong-un regime of driving up tensions on the Korean peninsula and in the region. The presidential office slammed the launch in a statement, calling it a flagrant violation of UN Security Council resolutions, saying that any activity by Pyongyang related to its nuclear and ballistic programs cannot be justified. The statement said Seoul has the will and the overwhelming capability to immediately retaliate against any threat and warned Pyongyang that it should not make any erroneous judgment. South Korea vowed to work closely with the UN and the international community to hold the North accountable for its breach of resolutions. The top office also stressed that the North has nothing to gain from escalating its provocations, which will only further isolate the regime and prompt additional global sanctions. It urged Pyongyang to stop such acts and respond to Seoul's aid for nuclearization proposal. Can you also sum up the response from other nations so far? Well, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who is visiting Bangkok for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation APEC summit, said that his country has lodged a vehement protest, adding that the North's actions are totally unacceptable. The US also censured the launch, pledging to take all necessary measures to defend the US as well as its allies, South Korea and Japan. White House National Security Council spokesperson A. Adrienne Watson said in a statement uh, President Biden was briefed on the events and plans to closely consult with ally as allies and partner nations. Despite tighter co- uh, collaboration with the US and Japan, uh, the UN Security Council remains divided over the North's mounting aggression. Immediately after Friday's launch, China uh, simply repeated its call for dialogue to resolve issues. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning made the statement in a briefing in Beijing. Okay, we'll leave that story there and move on to our other headlines now. Leaders of South Korea and Spain agreed to strengthen cooperation in construction and cutting-edge industries. So tell us more about this meeting. President Yun and visiting Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez issued a joint statement following their summit at the presidential office in Yongsan on Friday. Yun took note of the potential for heightened economic cooperation uh, during in-depth discussions on enhancing their strategic partnership. He welcomed the expansion of mutual investment between the two nations' businesses into electrical vehicle uh, batteries, uh, renewable energy and fuel future industry. On security matters, Madrid joined Seoul in strongly denouncing North Korea's aggression and agreed to closely coordinate efforts within the international community to show a united front. Sanchez is the first Spanish head of government to arrive in South Korea on a singular state visit since the two countries forged diplomatic ties in 1950. And finally, the Qatar World Cup kicks off this weekend 
and the Red Devils, the official supporters club for the uh, Korean national football team, said on Thursday that it submitted a request to the Seoul Metropolitan Government for permission to hold events in Gwangmun Square for from November 23rd to December 3rd. Uh, can you explain a bit more? Well, the move comes after the Football Association, uh, known as the KFA, uh, announced earlier this month its decision to cancel its request to use the square for cheering events, saying that it would not be appropriate in the wake of a fatal crowd crush tragedy in Itaewon at the end of October. Now, if uh, the Seoul government grants approval, the events are set to take place in the square on November 24th and 28th, as well as December 2nd, when South Korea completes in group matches. The Seoul government is set to make a decision on the latest request sometime next week. OK, we'll leave it there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Coming up next is in-depth news analysis. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. One of the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchange platforms, FTX, filed for bankruptcy last week, sending shockwaves through the crypto world. It has renewed concerns about the safety and value of cryptocurrencies with even financial authorities here in Korea expressing caution. We'll take a closer look now for weekly economy review and we'll also discuss the situation concerning the rising price of milk in South Korea. And providing us with the analysis is economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello. It's great to see you again. Happy to be here. OK, so we begin with this case concerning FTX. The crypto exchange filed for bankruptcy protection in the U.S. last Friday due to a quote-unquote severe liquidity crisis. Its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, resigned as CEO the same day. Uh, The FTX's bankruptcy case includes uh, more than 100,000 creditors, uh, and this number could surpass a million, according to the exchange's uh, bankruptcy filings. Now, this is a huge shock as the... uh, Exchange platform was the third largest in the world and was valued at 32 billion US dollars. So, Professor, for our listeners, can you give us uh, details about what led to the collapse of FTX? Okay, well, the uh, collapse of FTX was basically an old fashioned bank run, or I should say, exchange run. Uh, it did not have anything directly to do with the fact that it dealt with the uh, virtual currency, uh, cryptocurrency, but it was. The uh, run was made possible because the industry was not regulated, because cryptocurrency right now is not regulated Mm. by uh, most governments. Uh, Now, how did this happen? A cryptocurrency news website, Coindesk, revealed on November 2nd that there were irregularities in the balance sheets of FTX. And a company called Alameda Research, which is a cryptocurrency trading company, 
And both of these companies are owned by the former CEA, Sam Bankman-Fried. It seemed that Alameda Research had run a dangerously large margin position on FTX, meaning essentially that Alameda Research had borrowed substantial amount of money from FTX. And it was uh, becoming fairly clear that Alameda Research could not pay the money back. Mm. Uh, Once the problem was revealed and once other notable uh, cryptocurrency investors such as CZ Zhao of Binance indicated that FTX was indeed in deep trouble, we had an old-fashioned bank run. Now, what happens in an old-fashioned bank run? It's uh, customers uh, have their money in the bank or exchange in this case, and they see that they might not get their money back, uh, but they do have some assets right now. So the customers basically begin a a rat race. Uh, They want to get most of their money back from the currently remaining assets as much as possible. So everybody comes in trying to get their money back and the uh, exchange or bank runs out of money, goes out of business. Uh, That's what seems to be happening. And uh, something like these type of bank runs happened actually quite a lot in up to about early 20th century. And uh, central bank central bank regulations, deposit insurance, these were all, and regulations. Uh, those were all tools to, designed to, uh, to prevent these kind of bank runs. But as I said, the uh, FTX was not subject to these kind of regulations because right now the uh, cryptocurrency industry and the exchanges are not regulated. Uh, now, Uh, The uh, problem seems to be running worse in this case because the uh, new CEO of FTX uh, has revealed that the uh, money management uh, system for FTX was a complete failure. And the problem was that uh, the FTX did not really oversee its money and the uh, top management seemed to be uh, uh, putting their money around wherever they wanted to put in without any kind of oversight. Uh, So uh, in that case... Uh, this kind of uh, bank run or exchange run was actually kind of inevitable. Right, so it seems uh, gross mismanagement uh, is at the heart of the issue mixed with uh, lack of uh, regulations. So what does this collapse of this exchange mean then for the broader crypto environment? It must be putting a lot of uh, crypto investors nervous and causing a lot of turmoil for people. Uh, The Economist, uh, let me quote, even said that uh, never before has crypto looked so criminal, wasteful and useless. Okay, well, uh, if you look at how the cryptocurrency was created in the first place, it was uh, first cryptocurrencies, uh, bitcoins and some of the earlier coins, were made because the creators did not trust the government and the central banks. Uh, They intentionally limited the supply of these currencies because they believed that having a limited supply would keep the value of the currency. That's why it's so difficult to mine some of these coins. Uh, Now, uh, what the uh, situation in the last couple of uh, last year or so has shown us with the high inflation. Remember that these coins were designed to hedge against inflation uh, because during uh, after the uh, 2008 global financial crisis, uh, these creators thought that central bank was printing too much money. Uh, because of the uh, global financial crisis, and I'm sure they felt the same way during the pandemic. Uh, So if we had, if these coins were indeed an inflation hedge, the uh, price of these currencies should have gone up during inflation. Mm. But right now we see those prices going down like a rock. Mm. Uh, So it's not 
acting as what the creators intended. It's acting much more like a good speculative good that was buoyed up actually by the high money supply. And now since, if the, uh, since the money supply is falling, the value of it is falling as well. So it's not acting as an inflation hedge. Uh, in addition, because it was created by people who had distrust of the government, they opposed regulations uh, continuously. But now they may have no choice but to accept regulation. Mm. A lot, in a lot of industries, financial and manufacturing, when they lose the confidence of the public, of the customers, the first thing they do is they ask the government to re regulate the industry so that government can, uh, regulation can add credibility to that uh, market. Uh, and uh, so it's a bit ironic, but this market was created by people who did not believe in regulation. And Sam uh, uh, Friedman, uh, the uh, former CEO of uh, FTX, said just a few weeks ago he did not believe in regulation of mm. the uh, cryptocurrency market, but they now may have no choice but to ask the government to please, please regulate us. Otherwise, they will lose uh, complete confidence in the cryptocurrency market. Yes, so as we said, this has shaken the cryptocurrency market to the core. Uh, and this incident also follows on from the massive crash involving the cryptocurrency TerraUSD and its sister token Luna a few months ago. That was, of course, started by a Korean company and both coins imploded in May and sparked huge losses in uh, crypto markets. So understandably in Korea, people are very wary of the uh, market at the moment. On Wednesday, the Financial Intelligence Unit under the Financial Services Commission said it was closely monitoring the FTX collapse and urged domestic virtual asset operators to make efforts to protect users. Professor, is there anything the South Korean financial authorities can do to prevent uh, similar incidents from happening, or at least minimize uh, the damage it does, uh, especially here in Korea? Well, in terms of exchanges, national governments have charge over the exchanges that are located within its borders. So Korean government may be able to do uh, introduce regulations or uh, keep closer watch on exchanges that are located in the borders. But exchanges located in other countries, they really don't have power over that. Cryptocurrencies themselves, they have no borders, uh, so they cannot regulate that. Uh, so it's still, in a sense, very, very vulnerable. I would do one or two things. And uh, this is, uh, the two things are actually completely opposite to each other. Okay. But the first option is for um, major governments around the world to, tr uh, to regulate cryptocurrency uh, and regulate it like any other uh, financial asset. Mm. We don't want regu uh, differential regulations to particularly favor one type of asset or another. So in this case, they would have to be regulated at least as well as a securities mm. uh, exchange. Um, that's one option. Uh, but the second option is just say that crypto is wild, wild west. You're entirely on your own. Uh, if you put money in it, you can lose it all. So buyer beware. Mm. Uh, in that case, government will be, in a sense, completely uh, separate itself from the uh, wild cryptocurrency market. And people hopefully will be well aware that this is a dangerous market that they can lose their shirt on. Right. That poses quite a risk, though. That could be quite a lot of... Uh... Korean cash heading out of the well, country as well. The problem is, if the government starts to uh, regulate the market and guarantees the safety of the market, but they can only do so partially, then they could get in. Uh, they could get into a 
more problems down the road if we get into, heaven forbid, some kind of crisis in the uh, cryptocurrency market. Sure, those two uh, extreme examples perhaps shows where we are where we are with the market at the moment. Uh, the shockwaves from the FTX incident are still being felt, so we will continue to watch the situation and see how it progresses in the long term as well. Let's look to our other topic today as well now, and that's milk prices. Starting Thursday, the Seoul Dairy Cooperative, the largest milk seller in South Korea, increased the price of milk and dairy products by 6% on average. Other dairy companies joined in on the move. Male Dairy raised the price of its 900ml milk product by 9.6%, while Namyang Dairy also raised the price of its same-sized milk product by 8.7%. Now, these hikes are due to the rise in prices of raw milk milk, according to the companies. Professor, could you explain for us uh, the root causes of this hike? Okay, well, it's because the prices of raw milk, as well as some other uh, agricultural commodities, especially rice, is not decided by the market. They are decided by the government, or to be more accurate, politics. Uh, the in the last two decades, Korean public consumers consumed less and less rice and milk. It did not uh, follow the uh, diet trend where uh, the, uh, especially the young people, their diet is becoming more westernized. So we're getting more and more unsold rice and milk. But because of political uh, strength of the agricultural sector, they've been able to actually raise the prices for raw milk and rice that the uh, uh, farmers produce. Mm. Now, the uh, government has been aware of the problem. They've been trying to reduce the prices, but strong opposition from the uh, agricultural sector as well as the politicians saying, we want the uh, agricultural uh, sector to survive. Uh, there's uh, problems with food security and so on. Now, an interesting aspect of milk is that people are drinking less milk Mm. But people are using more milk uh, for baking cakes, uh, for baking bread, right. uh, ice cream, cheese, and so on. Uh, but because Korean milk is so expensive, these cheese companies, these dairy, uh, these bakeries use European milk. Mm. So what the government wanted to do was to set a two-tiered price system, a higher tier for drinking milk and lower tier for cheese and other uh, uh, uses for milk, especially when it goes into other food products. Uh, but uh, the uh, farmers refused, and the uh, negotiation, which was legally supposed to end by August, was delayed until early November. Uh, that's why we're seeing the uh, rise in prices now. Uh, because of the lot of uh, bad press that the farmers have been getting, and because this uh, rise in price of raw milk will increase inflation overall, I think the uh, farmers were pressured, so they are going to accept the two-tiered pricing system, and they're going to accept some uh, adjustment in prices if there's an oversupply. But still, the prices are basically decided by political means rather than uh, economic means. That's why we're having this problem. I see. So this new system, that's starting next year, right? Right. Uh, then do you think that will stabilise the market prices? No. Okay. And uh, there's two reasons. It comes from uh, Economics 101. The first is look at the f two functions of prices. Uh, and the first function of price is that we want... Uh, 
the uh, pr uh, price to settle who buys milk and who produces milk. Because it's set too high by political means, inefficient milk uh, producers are going to remain. Efficient milk producers are going to have monopoly power, uh, so we will not see reduction in supply. We may actually see increases in supply, but we will continue to see fallen demand because milk has become more expensive. And second problem, the second role of prices is that uh, if you cannot make money in the milk industry uh, at current prices, you're supposed to make other things. Uh, and this is maybe more applicable to the rice market than to the milk market, but we want people to produce less rice, less milk, and produce more of other grains that Korea is in shortage of, like wheat, but they're not going to go there because they're making a nice living right now uh, in rice. They don't have to compete with imported products. So we're going to be stuck with the same problem. It's probably going to make it worse. Hmm, okay, so it sounds like this is an issue that we're going to be talking about again in the future. But for today, uh, we'll leave it there. Professor Yang, thank you for your analysis as always. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 1.58 points, or 0.06% on Friday, closing the week at 2,444.48. The Tekevi Kazdaq fell, however, losing 5.62 points, or 0.76%, closing the day at 731.92. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 1.21 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,340.31. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We carry on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, looking at some of the other stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we're joined by Walter Lee. Walter, hello. It's good to see you again. Hello, Chang. It's always good to see you. OK, so what topics do you have for us today? OK, so we'll talk about a decision by 14 operators of intercity buses in Gyeonggi province to implement a no-standing policy from Friday. We'll also find out what led more than 200 complaints in Incheon, Kimpo and Seoul to file complaints to their district offices. And finally, we'll learn about the menu that was served to Team Korea in their first week at Doha ahead of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. OK, let's jump straight into that first story then. What can you tell us? Yeah, so around half of the inner city buses in Gyeonggi province began a policy on Friday to not accept passengers when there are no seats left. Now, 14 affiliates of KD Transportation Group, a local transportation company, implemented the no-standing policy on Friday, affecting some 1,100 buses on 146 inner city routes. That's about 44% of the buses running between Gyeonggi and Seoul. So many of the routes link the capital with Songnam, Yongin, Gwangju and Namyangju cities. Okay, so no standing on these intercity buses then. Uh, what's the reason behind the uh, policy? Okay, so the companies reportedly decided to implement the policy for the safety of passengers after the Itaewon crowd crush. Given that some of the other bus operators have already implemented the same no-standing policy in the province since July, you won't be able to get on virtually any of the intercity buses in Gyeonggi if all seats are taken. Now, as a result, the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transportation decided to move up plans to operate additional buses. The government plans to employ 14 more buses, including two reserve vehicles, within this month to reduce confusion during commuting hours. It also plans to operate an additional 46 buses 
on 22 routes to increase seating by 2,300 within this year. Right, so the increased concern in public safety is, of course, a welcome, but understand that there were some concerns about whether the switch would go smoothly. Mm. So what did the first day of this new policy look like? Well, given that it was the first day, there was confusion and complaints from passengers, but overall no major chaos was witnessed. Mm. Now, one passenger who takes an inner-city bus from Bundang to Seoul's Jung district said while the policy is a good one, the government should have implemented it only after employing additional buses in order to avoid the public from suffering inconvenience. Right. That is a valid point, of course, but hopefully they will add more buses quickly. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I'm sure the passengers, while uh, they might have to wait a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. uh, they might appreciate being able to sit down during the whole ride as well. Okay. Let's move on. What do you have for us next? Yes. So residents in Incheon, Gimpo and Seoul suffered from an unbearable stench on Thursday afternoon due to an odorant leak at the Metropolitan Landfill in the port city of Incheon. Now, at around 3pm on Thursday, some 30 litres of odorant leaked from a facility inside the landfill in the city's Seoul district that turns food waste and water into biogas. Now, odorants are chemical additives that are mixed in with natural gas as a safety precaution. Because natural gas is odorless and colourless, odorants are added to be deliberately distinctive so that the presence of gas in the air is detectable. Okay, so that must have been rather unsettling for the residents. What kind of smell do they give off if uh, leaked into the air? So odorants, though harmless to humans, give off the smell of rotten eggs, even with the slightest presence in the air. Now, due to a leak, uh, the Saw District Office received some 200 complaints about an awful stench. Now, some complaints also came from the Sao Dong in Gimpo and Seoul's Kangso District. Now, both the Seoul District Office and the Seoul Metropolitan Government sent out public safety alerts about the incident, saying some parts of the district and city had a stench due to the leak. I see. So uh, how do they get rid of this smell in the end then? Was yeah. there uh, something they could they could actually do? Right, right. So the Su Dogon Landfill Site Management Co- uh, Corporation sprayed water around the site of the leak and used absorbent cloth and sand to contain the smell. I see. So a rather odd incident, <laughs> but thankfully no lasting consequences. Right. Okay, let's move on to our final story for today. What else has been trending? So the Korea Football Association unveiled on Thursday the menu that was served to Team Korea for their first week in Doha ahead of the 2022 FIFA World Cup that will kick off on Sunday. Upon arriving in Doha, the national team has been taking part in their final round of training. Their first Group H match is against Uruguay and will be held next Thursday. Now, chefs Kim Hyung-chae and Shin Dong-il, who came up with the menu for the national team in the three previous World Cups have taken the helm again in feeding the national squad. Right, so while we wait for the games to begin, these are the sorts of stories we'll be getting, it seems. <laughs> uh, so tell us about this week's menu and what were some of the things that stood out? Yeah, so the menu mostly consisted of Korean dishes using various kinds of meat. Usually the players were served chicken or duck for lunch and beef for dinner. Now what was interesting about the menu was the absence of pork. Now as a Muslim country, Qatar restricts access to alcohol and completely bans pork products in the country. As both items are considered haram or unlawful in Islam. Now, the restrictions were an obstacle for the chefs as the two items would have been importing ingredients for their menu. Pork is featured in many Korean meals and alcohol is often used in the cooking process to make dishes more savoury. Now, some of the dishes that Team Korea consumed this week are chonggukjang, a Korean traditional dish made with fermented soybeans. They also ate spicy chicken stew, fried brim, kimchi stew with tuna and spicy stir-fried squid. 
Yes, so definitely no samgyeopsal, uh, mm. but the menu um, doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. Uh, I understand that the chefs did have a concern, though. Yeah, right. So food poisoning is their major concern. Now, Kim said the kitchen he's been provided to prepare the meals is small and very sensitive to heat. He said the hotel is helping him and Shin manage food materials and the hygiene of the kitchen. Yes, we definitely wish that they stay 100% fit and healthy so they can give their all right. for the games ahead. Right, we'll wrap it up there for Career Trending today. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. We've come now to our Friday feature movie spotlight, discovering the latest cinematic releases at the Korean box office and online. And casting their discerning eye over the films are our critics. Today we have Jason Beshevace. Jason, hello. Hello, Jay. And we also have Mark Raymond with us as well. Mark, hello. It's good to see you too. Good to see you again. Okay, so two local films this week, which is nice. The first is the perhaps more commercial one, I would say, but fairly both uh, low-key this week. The first is also a remake as well. It's called Ditto, or Tonggam in Korean, and it's a remake of the 2000 hit melodrama of the same name, uh, Yuji Tae and Kim Hanel starring in that one. Uh, people of a certain generation here in Korea, Jason, will remember it very fondly. But uh, can you tell us more about this new film? Yeah, sure. So the, the original film is this much-admired melodrama uh, directed by Kim Jong-won uh, and co-written by Jang Jin, uh, released back in 2000, the kind of the heyday of uh, Korean melodramas. Mm. Uh, it was actually also released, or re-released rather, in Korea uh, in 2020, so a couple of years ago. Uh, and the original film, uh, it follows two students enrolled at the same school, but they're able to communicate through uh, through a, basically an old radio. Mm. Um, uh, but they're both from kind of different, they're in different kind of uh, time periods. So Yuji Tae's characters, uh, he's a student in 2000 uh, and uh, or the late 90s. And Kim Anil, uh plays an undergraduate in a tumultuous 1970s. I think it's set in 1979. Sure, it's uh, a bit of a magical ham radio, right? So they sure, just talk through yeah, time, am- Yeah, ham radio, amateur radio. Mm. Uh, and so in the, in the remake, it's essentially the same thing, but somewhat with a spin on the date. So the male lead, played by Yojingu, uh, he's a mechanical engineering major in 1999. Um, and so similar period to the first film, um, but <laughs> obviously we're not living in 1999. Uh, and so the female protagonist, played by Cho uh, Yi Hyun, uh, she's uh, playing a student in 2021, so the kind of today, you know, mm. present day. Um, and so, yeah, again, they get their hands on this kind of ham radio and start communicating, discussing, you know, life, friendship. And, uh, you know, of course, this is a melodrama, so love. Uh, <laughs> and it also stars uh, Kim Ye-yun and uh, Nain Wu. Uh, it's helmed by uh, Song Young, who made uh, the indie romance Overman. Uh, that's actually quite decent. And also the low-budget thriller Go Back, uh, that I wasn't so keen on. Uh, and so this is her third feature. Uh, it's the latest remake uh, following um, a couple of remakes that were released in theatres a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Il Young's Remember and also uh, Yoon Jon Sok's Confession. Yes, so uh, nostalgia can be quite a powerful tool to attract and move audiences. And it's interesting 
that uh, we're seeing uh, a bit more of that nowadays in Korean film and TV. Uh, but it's interesting also that this new film is looking back at the 90s nostalgically. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than the fact that it's starting to make me feel rather old, that uh, <laughs> 90s is a nostalgia era now, uh, it's also quite a stark contrast in the original because mm-hmm. the character in the past is from a more tumultuous time mm-hmm. in the late 70s, early 80s in Korea compared to the 90s in Korea, of course. Mark, how does this transition fare then? And what do you think of the film? Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty decent remake, and mostly because it it does um, some structural keeps the structure basically the same, but then makes some changes, specifically with the gender, right? The fact that the male is now in the past instead of the female, which is what the original was, mm. is actually a big change. And I think the film kind of does that because, like you said, in 1999, it isn't really a particularly tumultuous period compared to 1979, which, of mm. course, and in the original film, although the movie, the original isn't really political per se, it's in the background of the fact that, you know, there are protesters going on, there are these elements, you know, there's things where, you know, he predicts the assassination of the president to kind of convince her that he actually is from the future, those <laughs> kind of things. Uh, whereas this film, it, I think it focuses... it. Because I won't, won't give any spoilers, even though sure. people see the original. There is a kind of a bit of a plot twist at some point in the movie. And it handles it very differently here because the character is male instead of female. Mm. He acts very differently than the original film. Mm. And I think that's where the kind of the twist is, where it becomes, instead of the politics of the nation, the national politics being kind of the background. Here, I think it's kind of gender politics and gender relationships that's kind of in the background. And that becomes um, there through this character and how he reacts to this kind of news from the future, if you will. Right, so it's interesting to compare mm-hmm. the two films, mm-hmm. but does this film in itself work, do you think? Do you enjoy it? That's hard to say. I mean, I like... Because <laughs> uh, I, I've... Uh, well, interestingly, I hadn't seen the original. Right, okay. uh, I watched the original the new film yesterday, and then I watched the original today. Oh, wow. And so okay. I had, so I've watched so both fresh. films in the last 24 hours, and I enjoyed that experience, but mm. it's hard for me to separate each film individually because I was watching them more as a comparison sense. Right. And even before I saw the remake, I read, I knew the basic plot of the original. So I was going in looking for the changes, looking for, sure. okay. And that's kind of, and as kind of a, maybe too much of an academic, that's how I think anyway. So, <laughs> so it's hard for me. I enjoyed both of the films, but on, but on less on that emotional maybe level uh, than maybe the, and I think the maybe uh, but I do think the performance in this new one, the lead perf- male performance, is pretty good. Okay. I was surprised. And, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. But, again, I think uh, I found it more for, like, uh, let's, the interesting kind of parts, how it kind of dealing with even Korean cinema. Because here, like, they go to see uh, Cherie, the big blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. There's, they're, they're watching Attack of the Gas Station, right, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, and they, Attack of uh, the Gas Station. I don't yeah. know if you remember the original. You probably don't. But they're they're watching, like, Seferelli's Romeo and Juliet. So that's a real big difference, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, sure, that, that kind of stuff was, was quite, uh, I found, uh, fun to kind of look for and kind of look at. Sure. So, yeah, I enjoyed the film on that level. If I went in complete, I don't know if somebody who goes in without having seen the original as a fresh, just as a pure melodrama, I'm not sure how well it would work. But Interesting. Okay. But certainly I thought it was, uh, 
you know, at least a decent example of the genre. Jason, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I thought it was okay. Uh, performances were, were decent. Um, I think it's interesting how, because I mentioned earlier how, you know, the, the heyday, heyday of, of Korean melodramas, 2000, you know, late 90s or early to mid 2000s. And it seems that Korean films, if they, you know, they, they want to be melodramatic or not necessarily melodramatic, but they want to kind of, you know, adopt this kind of uh, melodrama. Uh, what they tend to do is they tend to go back in time. Not always, but they often go back in time. And they, they try to capture like, the essence of, you know, what made the films work so well. Um, and I guess, I mean, it's somewhat ironic in that melodramas suggest that they're very sentimental, but I think the best melodramas in Korea are actually really understated. Mm. And, you know, Christmas in August is a great example of that. Um, And yet these films, I would say that they're very much sentimental and they don't work as well. And it seems like they're reliant on going back in order to kind of capture what made, you know, melodrama so successful. So I think it's trying to find something new. It's, it's really, really important, but I think it's a a genre that struggles on its own, but you do continue to see melodrama in various forms in pretty much in so many Korean films, but on its own, it's quite hard to, uh, to do really well um, in this kind of era of streaming and uh, yeah. And the current studio system. Sure, and from the sounds of it, it sounds like it'll be hard for this new ditto to uh, challenge the original place, original's place in uh, Korean cinematic history. Okay, let's move on to our second film this week. It's a smaller indie release, uh, but it has been receiving a lot of critical acclaim. It's called The Apartment with Two Women. The Korean title is a bit different. It's called Katun Sogozul Ibn Tuyoja. And Mark, I know you want to talk about the difference in the two titles. Can you introduce it for us? <laughs> yeah, this is the debut feature from uh, Kim Se-in, um, who was only 28 years old when she made the film. Uh, premiered last year at Busan, which is where I saw it, and I believe Jason as well. And it was, it went on, it won four awards there, so very highly acclaimed out of Busan. It's gone on to play at Berlin and Udine this year. And it's finally getting its local theatrical run now. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, the, the Apartment of Two Women is the English title. The literal translation is closer to Two Women Who Share the Same Underwear, which is a very different title, much more kind of provocative. <laughs> Gets more kind of at the a bit of the perverse relationship between that's being examined here. Because uh, this is really kind of, uh, there are these kind of plot elements of the film. But I think it's more about this kind of character study of these two women. One is the the daughter played by um, Im Ji Ho, who won Best Actress at Busan for this performance. Um, and her mother, um, played by Yang Mao Bok, who lived together despite having this very contentious and even kind of violent mother-daughter relationship. And the film kind of really examines that and really their relationships almost becomes this kind of, um, you might say, almost like a third aspect of the mm. film, that they have their each of their own stories, but somehow their interaction is a whole other kind of toxic kind of thing. So it's very much about this mo- mother-daughter relationship. 
but without kind of any real sentimentality so to go back oh, to our original no sentimentality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so this is not the the melodrama in that sense even though it does have some aspects of sure. what we might call like a psychodrama we might say sure that's yes. very pot like these kind of limited set like films that really dig into like the psychological relationship between characters this is what this film is really going after. Yeah. Yes, it sounds like the little translation of the film is perhaps uh, more accurate and more striking for yes. the film's tone, but perhaps the uh, English title is a little less intimidating, shall we say. <laughs> uh, Jason, this is the latest in a number of uh, debut films directed by women uh, that have premiered at the Busan Film Festival over the past five years. Uh, how do you think this film compares with these uh, other acclaimed works, such as Kim Bora's House of Hummingbird and uh, Yun Dabin's Moving On? Well, they're all fantastic films. Um, it's really interesting how it's these female directors that are really uh, kind of uh, making a name for themselves uh, at Busan um, in the yeah the new current section or, or the vision section. Um, yeah, no, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, actually, there were two films that screened in Busan last year that that just took my breath away I'm, I'm not just saying that they're just really really good uh, so there's this one and there's also uh, Seire uh, by, directed by uh, Pat Gang which is mm. uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about it so I just want to mention it briefly but it's a horror film um, and actually I think it's going to be released later on this this month but uh, yeah it's uh, that's also fantastic one of the best horror debuts of recent years and this film as well yeah I mean Marx is I completely agree with him like it's it's really uh, the, the acting is absolutely fantastic. The two leads, it's really well written. Uh, it's really intense. So they have these kind of these these arguments that are incredibly. Um, I mean, I was just totally fixated, um, and it's you know it's a fascinating film, um, and it's 140 minutes long, but it just it just goes by so quickly. Mm, um, and uh, yeah, she's only 28 years old, um, as, as Mark mentioned. Kim Se-in, you know, born in uh, the 1990s, and sure. so yeah, fantastic film, fantastic debut. It's one of the best debuts of, of the year, and I think she's going to win a whole t- whole number of awards going forward as well. And you joined the overall positive response to the film as well yeah i really like this film i think it might be one of the it's, it'll definitely be one of the top five korean films of this year in terms sure, of films absolutely. That were this year. that's pretty pretty clear um the only other films like maybe decision to leave is the only film off, mm. off the top of my head that's in the same real category and it's um and yeah it, it kind of uh kind of remarkable how that this this young filmmaker has this real um not so much that she understands the younger female character, which you know a lot of these a lot of these other films directed by women are kind of coming of age films, mm. and this film the the protagonist is a little bit older, but she's in her twenties. She's in this kind of generation, but how much she gets at the female the uh, the mother character is really sure. kind of the striking thing about the film. How well she writes that character, because the, the the movie begins almost like maybe she's just a the pure villain and the film is not right. that simple. Not no, that it's simple. not that simple. Yeah. It mm-hmm. evolves mm-hmm. as the narrative progresses and um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic debut. Yeah, if you're in Korea, please go and see it. Yeah. Okay, sure. so that was our second film, The Apartment with Two Women, an emphatic two thumbs up from our critics. Absolutely. Right, that's all for our movie spotlight this week. Jason, Mark, thank you for your reviews and we'll see you again soon. Take thank care. Thank you.
We wrap up the show now by looking ahead to what's happening next week in our segment Next Week from Seoul. And providing us with the preview is our staff editor, Richard Larkin, who's here with us in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what's the first thing we should look out for next week? Well, we have talked about it on the show before, but here is a a reminder that the 2022 World Cup in Qatar kicks off on Sunday. The opening ceremony for the tournament will take place on Sunday at 5pm local time, and Jungkook from BTS has been confirmed to perform. Matches will then start on Monday, with South Korea's opening game against Uruguay taking place on Thursday. Right, we should say that matches start Monday, Korea time. 1am, in fact, is the first game between Qatar and Ecuador. Uh, We will, of course, discuss it further on our Monday Sports Roundup segment next week. Okay, Richard, what's the next thing we should look out for? Well, in COVID-19 news, the South Korean government has designated four weeks from Monday until December 18th as an intensive vaccination period. During this time, people can receive their bivalent booster shots at medical clinics without having to make reservations. The government's aim for this period is to raise the rate of booster inoculation to 50% of those aged 60 or older and 60% of residents and employees at high-risk facilities. I see. So from Monday, no reservation needed for bivalent booster shots. Uh, Let's carry on. What else is happening next week? The Bank of Korea will have its last policy meeting of the year on Thursday. The BOK's benchmark rate is now 100 basis points lower than the US Federal Reserve's, leading to expectations that the central bank will raise its rate for the sixth consecutive time next week. This comes as earlier this month, the US Federal Reserve raised its key interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point for the fourth consecutive time. Now eyes are on the BOK to see whether it will conduct another big step on Thursday, as it did in its last policy meeting, where it raised the benchmark rate by 50 basis points to 3% in a bid to tame inflation. Yes, so a big step is expected, but also what they hint for future rate hikes will also need to be closely watched as well. Let's squeeze in one more, Richard. What can you tell us? Investigations are still underway over the authorities' response to the Itaewon crowd crush on October 29th. According to the police, Choi Sung Bom, chief of the Yongsan Fire Station and ex-Yongsan police station head Im Jae, will appear for questioning on Monday. They were both booked last week on charges of professional negligence due to a mismanaged rescue response, resulting in the death of at least 158 people in the incident. Interior Minister Yi Sang-min has also been booked on charges of professional negligence resulting in death and dereliction of duties. This comes after a complaint was filed against him by a union of fire department workers. Right, so those are some of the stories to look out for next week. Richard, thank you for that roundup, and we'll see you Monday. Thank you. And that's all from us here on Career 24 for this week. We'll be back on Monday, so do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of career news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great weekend. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. ABS World Radio.